Good afternoon, everyone. Um, I want to thank you for joining us this afternoon and for this discussion that we'll have uh, with Rodney. Have, the title is From Racism to Justice, What Our Children Deserve. And want to particularly thank Rodney Robinson for uh, being here this afternoon, the 2021 uh, Jepson School of Leadership Studies Leader in Residence. Um, Rodney is a 20-year veteran, teacher, and passionate advocate of underprivileged and under represented students. Uh, he was named the 2019 National Teacher of the Year. He currently serves as Senior Advisor for Richmond Public Schools, where he creates programming to recruit and retain male teachers of color and coordinates anti-racism programs for the school district and the greater Richmond community. An advocate of economic and cultural equity, Rodney strives to ensure students have teachers and administrators who look like them and value their culture. He has worked on creating student programs to combat the school to prison pipeline. Through a collaboration with Pulitzer Prize winning author James Foreman Jr., he developed a, cult, uh, a curriculum that units on race and class and punishment as part of the Yale New Haven Teachers Institute. In 2019, he was named HBCU Male Alumnus of the Year and the Root Magazine named him one of the year's most influential American, African Americans. He has a bachelor's degree from Virginia State University, an administration and supervision, master's degree from VCU. Rodney has spent this past week with Jepson students and faculty getting to know uh, them and are, are as part of our leader in residence program. Um, and the, historically that has invited uh, folks into from the local state and national leaders to play an active role in the Jepson community. Although this fall, the leader in residence role has been virtual, as you see here this afternoon, we hope in the spring to have a public event where we can invite people to meet Rodney in person. So Rodney, thank you for being with us this afternoon and thank you all for joining us on this webinar. Good afternoon, good afternoon. It is my pleasure to be here today. Um, it's just in a virtual world, you know, Really would like to be on campus. I think, you know, University of Richmond has one of the most beautiful campuses in in Virginia. It's just, I mean, it's just, I love the nature. It's just so scenic to be on that campus. So I'm really uh, disturbed that I can't have a day on campus. However, I will be on in the spring. Hopefully, if we're allowed to be on in the spring, you know, hopefully, you know, we can look at COVID as in the past. You know, I often say that, you know, one day we're going to look back on this whole year and be like, describe everything as a 2020. That's going to be a new new adjective we have. You have a bad day, people will be like, how was your day? And you'd be like, uh, it was just a 2020 day. <laughs> you know, I think that's really what, what's going to happen. Um, it's not letting me share my screen, Shane. <laughs> and there we go. All right. All right, so just to give you a little bit of background, I mainly want to hear your questions, so I'm just going to give you a little background on how, who I am and what I go through. Um, I am Rodney Robinson. I am the 2019 National Teacher of the Year. I am currently a senior advisor with Richmond Public Schools. My main focus is the RVA Men Teach program, which will launch next month, which is really an effort to recruit more male teachers of color into the um, city of Richmond. And then I'm also working on the anti-racist policy agenda. And I'm really proud that Richmond Public Schools is stepping up this equity work 
and in the time when most divisions are stepping away from equity work due to funding issues, RPS made this commitment in 2018 with their dream for RPS, and they're really going through with it. So I'm really happy to have this opportunity to do this work, especially on the local level, because you know I feel that localities is where most change is made. And so I'm really happy to be doing this. Uh, just social media, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Rod Robinson RVA. Of course, I'm on LinkedIn at Rod Robinson, Rodney Robinson. Or you can just um, add, go to my website, rodrobinsonrva.com, if you want to learn more about some of my other speeches, some of the things. Or if you want to message me, uh, you can go to the website and message me. Um, so this is me throughout the years, just a young boy trying to find his way through education growing up in rural Virginia, you know, and found my way pretty good. If I could go back and give myself advice as a young kid, it would probably be to just take advantage and appreciate your hair while you got it. And so I'm really, you know, disappointed that I don't have hair anymore, but that's a whole nother subject that I'll take up with genetics one day. But um, <laughs> growing up in Kingwell County, Virginia was a really, really unique situation. Um, and then last year, 2019, I was named National Teacher of the Year, went to CBS this morning, and I met Gail and those other people. And quite honestly, can you name those other two people? I can't. <laughs> but <laughs> Gail was nice. Gail was wonderful. And she was just as caring as can be. However, this situation was a really unique situation because I had been through two days of intensive media training before I went up to CBS this morning. And media training tries to put you in a box. You know, I've always been one that, one, I never fit in the box because I'm one that I'm very blunt sometimes. I say things that need to be said. I'm a very honest person. And we all know when you're dealing with media, the last thing they want is honesty. They want you to be fit in that box, tell people what they want to hear to make them happy. And so it was just weird that day. Even though I'm smiling, I'm happy. I knew I was going to embark on the journey as National Teacher of the Year. And I had no idea what that entailed, you know, because I just spent two days of them telling me pretty much not to be myself. And so it was just a weird, weird two days of media training because they were saying, Mr. Robinson, your answers are a little too rough. And we don't really like the feeling it generates within the audience where I was like, I kind of said it that way because I want to generate some feelings. I don't, I feel change doesn't come until you can stir up some sort of emotion in people. And so we just had two days of just awkward moments. But then, however, I was named, I went, came back to Richmond and I was given the keys of the city by Mayor LeVar Stoney. Doesn't work. I tried it a couple places. Um, then I went to the White House and it was really, really funny situation, that, that whole White House visit. Because number one, they didn't want me there. They sent out a memo, they sent talked to CCSSO and said that, number one, you're not going to the White House. And number two, you will not be given your award by President Trump. And so to me, it wasn't about President Trump. It was about the White House visit because my enslaved ancestors built the White House. And so for me to go and stay in that Oval Office, stand in that Oval Office, would have been the ultimate tribute to 
my ancestors. And so they had a ceremony that day. And also I was the first national teacher of the year to have media blackout of my ceremony. There was no media allowed. And so I was given my award by Betsy DeVos. I was told I couldn't speak because they didn't like my speech. However, I snuck in my speech anyway that was rather critical of a lot of Department of Education policies. And so that's why I'm smiling so hard in that picture of Betsy DeVos, because I literally just gave a speech where I criticized her entire department. And she had to come and take a picture with me where she had to smile. So that was just a really unique moment for me. You know, people's like, oh, you're smiling. Yeah, you don't know the situation. And so that's why I smiled. And of course, I smiled when I finally got into the Oval Office, because I think of what my ancestors had to go through when they built it and the hundreds of years of working in the White House and what they had to put up with. And so to me, to go there was just the ultimate honor of my ancestors. And so, and then of course, I got invited to speak to the entire House Democratic Caucus. That speech was made by, through James Clyburn at, at the behest of the lady in the green, that's 2016 National Teacher of the Year, Johanna Hayes. And it's really unique what they're doing in Congress right now. They, they decided that they would put a teacher on the education committee. I mean, it's just that type of forward thinking that pushes us forward in Congress. But now seriously though, what she does is she says, she wants teachers to tell their stories to Congress and how policy looks when it gets to the classroom. And so she, got, she gave me the opportunity to do that and that was just super exciting to do that. And besides, I teach AP government. So I'm in the room with people I've been teaching about for the past 10, 15 years. You know, Nancy Pelosi, Stenny Hoyer, Bobby Rush, Maxine Waters. And then the moment of my life, I got a chance to meet John Lewis. You know, and you know, in America, we use that term icon too loosely. You know, but John Lewis was a true, true American icon. And I mean, I like to say I was cool and calm and collected. But then someone sent me a video and I was stuttering and carrying on because I, I'm in the presence of greatness. I think Obama said it best was one day we're going to look at John Lewis as one of the founding fathers of, of American democracy for what he's done. And so, you know, he actually told me to go get into some good trouble this year. And I almost fainted, I swear to God. But, you know, it's just one of those moments, you know. And then, of course, after my gala, I met with Johanna Hayes. And Johanna told me that while I'm doing it this year, I need to know why I'm doing this. Because I have a platform and I have a job as National Teacher of the Year to tell the truth. But most importantly, I need to know why I do it. Because the job is hard. She said, you're going to get hate mail. You're going to get all sorts of negative things. But you have to understand that this is your purpose. and You have to live in your purpose. And when she asked me why I did it, you know, I thought about it. And this is why I do it. This is my mother, Sylvia Robinson. She wanted to be a teacher, but she never got the opportunity to do the segregation and poverty in Virginia. However, she decided to run an in-home daycare. And she took care of every kid in the neighborhood, often for little or no money. She would tell the parents, if you need childcare, drop your kid off. Some need if you got it, some money if you got it. But just pick them up later that day. And so it was just really weird growing up in that house, A, because you never knew who would be in the bed next to you in the morning when you wake up. It could be like three other kids, and you're like, Mom, who are these people? You know. But it was also interesting because my mom loved everyone. And when you grow up in a house full of that love, it, it sticks with you. And then when those other kids left, 
she taught me lessons on equity because I had a sister with cerebral palsy. And my sister, my mom would tell us off that she said, I don't love you any less than your sister. Your sister just needs more of my time. And so that was the lessons of equity I learned growing up from my mother. And I always take this lesson, I say each student is different and the good teacher always gives the students love and what they need, not what is equal. And so that's what, I, what I've been going through. That's my philosophy in the classroom. You know, especially in the juvenile detention where I work because you may have a kid who's in AP classes sitting next to a kid who's developmentally delayed. So you have to give them that love and that, that, that understanding of what they need, not what is equal. And so that was really, really important to me. And so everything I do in education, I view it through a lens of equity, social justice, inclusion, diversity, access. Am I giving the students what they need to be successful? And so that influences everything I do. And it really, honestly, caused me a lot of issues too, because I feel like if I'm in a situation where things aren't, you know, diverse, things aren't being accessible to everyone, I have to speak on it, you know, and it's gotten me into a lot of issues, you know. Recently, you know, I think one of the biggest issues I've had with the presidential debates is that they don't have sign language interpreters there. And so if you want to give everyone access, we need to start talking about these things. And when I see something, I have to say something. Like I said, that's gotten me into a lot of situations. And also I teach because I want to be that black male role model for my students. You know, and that's for black and white students. I remember growing up, these were the only two African-American male role models I had. The guy on the left, that was Calvin Sorrell. He was my band teacher, fifth through eighth grade. And he just helped me with those identity issues. When you're in a honors program, a black kid in the honors program in a predominantly white rural school, you're gonna have identity issues. Because people tell you all sorts of things, you're different than the other black kids. You're better than the other black kids. I'm like, you mean my friends and my brothers? And then when I had to deal with issues of racial um, abuses, he was the guy I went to who told me how to handle it, how to deal with it. And the guy on the right, that's Dr. Lewis. He was my assistant principal. He was brought in my senior year, not willingly. Our school had just lost two lawsuits. And so they figured, let's get a black assistant principal to do it. But to show you that everybody benefits from that, I remember our high school reunion and everybody was sitting around talking and everybody was talking about how great Dr. Lewis was. Nobody remembered the name of our white principal. We literally had to go look it up in the yearbook, you know, but everybody black and white knew who Dr. Lewis was. And so that's when I say all students benefit from having diverse teachers. And so he was the one that encouraged me to go to Virginia State to give me that culturally affirming education I needed. And that's what it's all about. You have to give students and put students in positions where they can be successful. And one thing Dr. Lewis knew, he said, you're intelligent, but you don't know who you are. So he was the one who encouraged me to go to Virginia State University. And from there, I worked, at, I worked all over the city of Richmond, but the place that stuck with me the most was Armstrong High School. If anybody knows the city of Richmond, Armstrong is one of those schools that's been segregated from the rest of the city economically and racially and it's you know just tough one of those neighborhoods that are that is tough but to me it's home i love it i love those people i love those kids it's a certain type of love that comes with growing up in tough tough situations i remember at armstrong we'd always say iron shop is iron and so when you come out of armstrong you're typically 
strong and better person for having experienced that. But there's also a love that will never be matched at any other place in the city. Now, I worked there for 12 years, but then, you know, I started to get a little burned out. And I remember my last year at Armstrong, I met this young man named Aaron. Funny, charismatic young man, always, always, you know, making everyone laugh. But as he came in his ninth grade, I watched him grow into a, a hardened 11th grader. And he was no longer funny. It was more of a cruelty, a anger to him about dealing with life. And I remember I failed in my, at the end of that year. And so also at the end of that year, I decided I would make a change, that I would move to Virgie Benford Education Center because at Virgie Benford, that school is inside the Richmond Juvenile Jail. And at first I wasn't sure I wanted to go, but then the U.S. Department of Education report came out that said Virginia was the number one state referring students to juvenile detention. And so that was my sign. That was like, okay, if you want to understand this whole school to prison pipeline, go in the jail and teach and work backwards. Because you can read books all day, but nothing beats that actual experience of living the situation. And so I moved down in to work with my kids. And I remember the first class, Aaron was the first student to walk in. And so I realized that, wait a minute, here's, I failed this kid, now he's in jail. This is the school to prison pipeline right in my face. And so it made me change everything from grading policies to attendance policies to my pedagogy. Everything about me as a teacher changed when I moved down to Virgie Benford because I realized that it's more important than just lessons. It's about life. And you have to influence, you have to get your kids ready for life. And so this was Richmond Juvenile Detention Center when it reopened in 2013 and had been shut down in 2011 by, because it violated various civil rights of the students. But it reopened in 2013, and this is what my principal walked into. And so she's decided that she was going to change the school around, and she was going to do some things. And so the first thing she did was change the name to Virgie Benford Education Center. And it, something like a name change, I don't think you understand how big that is, because now we say we're a school. We have expectations of learning. And so when you come down to the Richmond Juvenile Detention Center, you're not just in jail, but there's also a school here. You know, I tell my students, told my students all the time, look, jail is down the hall across, across there. This is school. When you come here, we have expectations. And the best way for you to take advantage of a second chance in life is a high quality education. So we're gonna do what it takes for you to be successful. And we did that because we focused on the three core aspects of learning conditions, the basic needs. Kids deserve to not be hungry. Kids deserve to feel safe in their environment. Kids deserve to have a consistent roof over their head. And these were things our kids were not getting on the street. They were just surviving. A lot of them were in there for crimes of survival. When I say crimes of survival, that means I'm breaking and entering because I need to eat. I'm selling drugs because my family needs the money. You know, that's, those are crimes of survival. And to me, that's not the kid's fault. That's our fault as society that we're reducing a 14 to 15 year old and turning them into a survivalist rather than taking care of our students. And so we make sure that their basic needs are met and that even when they leave us, we're gonna set them up on a path to where they still get their basic needs met. 
The second thing is the social emotional needs. We're going to help you grow as a person. We're going to believe in you. You know, I often tell my, ask my students, when was the last time you had success in the classroom? For most of them, it goes back to elementary years, even if they had success. Some of them say never. Where our school, we're going to help you out. We're going to make sure that you believe in yourself, that you get all the help you need. And that's what, one thing about transferring the environment. It's saying, hey, we're going to help you grow. One thing about helping you grow is we're going to remove all the physical bars around you and help you understand that you're in a place of learning, a place of love, a place of belonging. And so once you build yourself up, now we can focus on your academics. You know, we had one, I tell people this all the time, it's no secret why we were successful at our school, because we do the things in education that works. Number one, we're a fully funded school. You know, we have a one-to-one -one technology ratio. No, actually, we have two-to-one technology ratio, because our kids not only have access to a computer, they also have access to a tablet. And so we make sure they have that. And then, you know, we make sure that they have a school psychologist, a school social worker, a full-time exceptional education case manager. We have career training at our school. We have everything we need to be successful. In addition to at maximum capacity, we still we will still be at only a 10 to 1 student ratio. That's what works. Small classes, having technology access, having all the things you need. And that's how we managed to turn up Virgie Benford, Virgie Benford into the top detention school in, in, uh, in Virginia because we just focused on what our kids need. And main thing is we believe in Maslow's over Bloom's. You know, Bloom's taxonomy of learning means absolutely nothing if their basic needs aren't taken care of. And that's our philosophy at Virgie Benford is we're going to make sure we take care of your basic needs. We're going to make sure you believe in yourself. We're going to make sure you feel welcome. We're going to make sure you experience learning through a hot, through a joy and through euphoria, rather than pain and the boring things that come along with school. And once you get to that high, high level of self-actualization, then you can focus on blooms. Then you can get a kid ready to take on the world. And so that's really our purpose at Virgie Benford. And so now as we move into this new era of 2020, we're dealing with another reckoning we have to deal with in education. That's our social justice reckoning. We need to make sure that all kids are feel loved and appreciated, but also teach them that it's your job to change society, to make society to what you want it to be. You know, I have my friend Sharif Mekki for the Center for Black Education, Educated Development says, the approach to education has to include social justice. You cannot, cannot operate a school and ignore the daily realities that are occurring for our kids. And so we have to be, push our kids to be the change that they need to be. Because all kids need to be empowered. All kids need to have that feeling of, I can make a difference in my neighborhood. And so you have to include social justice. And so when you're, because it's important to understand that we need more teachers of color in order to make that happen. We need more teachers of color in education. And I know sometimes when I say this, a lot of white teachers get upset and say, oh, we feel like you saying we can't teach our kids. We're not saying that you can't teach our kids. What we're saying and what the studies say is that all kids benefit 
from having a diverse teacher workforce, especially students of color who are less likely to be in special ed. Parents are more likely to be involved in school. The children are 30, any student who gets a teacher of color in elementary school, they're 39% less likely to drop out of school and 19% more likely to go to college. So we really have to start having conversations of how do we diversify our teacher workforce. And so we really need to understand that Black Lives Matter, my struggle is your struggle. We have safe and inclusive classrooms because our kids deserve it. Our kids deserve teachers who can say these things. I, and to quote Matina Love, if you can't say Black Lives Matter, you should not be teaching Black children because you have to build them up. You have to tackle the social justice issues that they deal with on a daily basis. You know, And I often, I often say, you know who has problem with these statements? People who are racist, xenophobic, and homophobic. You know, and if you have a problem with any of these statements, then you need to look within yourself and ask yourself, why do I believe these things? You know, because it's really important that we deal with the issues that our students are dealing with if we truly want to make them change agents that we want them to be. And so we need to help out our black teachers. We need to help out our brown teachers. We need to make sure that all environments are inclusive of this. Um, for one thing, I often think about Jose Wilson. He's a... Um, author from New York. He's also a teacher and author, but he also talks about um, how as a black teacher, I was hired to teach math, but then when I get there, I'm now given all these other opportunities. I am now the cultural expert. I am now the role model. I am now everything else that my school needs because I need to check off a box of diversity. He said, I originally just wanted to be teach math. But because I have to do this, I am tired. I am burnt out. And so I really need other, we need other teachers who will step up and do this work. Which brings me to the work of Bettina Love once again, who talks about the allies versus the accomplices in education. You know, an ally is that teacher who watches the teachers of color or the LGBTQ teachers, the other teachers do the work. You don't stand in their way but you don't offer a hand. You just cheer them on and say, hey, you're doing good work. Well, that's not fair to that teacher because that teacher has to do all that work and that teacher has to teach a class. They have to be a pedagogical expert and a cultural expert. Why can't you use your privilege? Why can't you step in and help those teachers who are doing the hard work? And that's the difference between an ally and a compass. An ally says, yeah, good job. And a compass says, hey, what do, you, what do you need me to do? What's the heavy lifting I need to do? And so we really need to start having those, those, questions, those conversations in education of making sure that we're being accomplices to teachers of color rather than being allies. Because ultimately, that's what helps our students. That's what empowers our students. And then lastly, it just boils down to Dr. Ibram Kinde. Our kids deserve teachers who are anti-racist, plain and simple. You know, a racist, of course, he says, is someone who is supporting racist policy through their actions or inactions. And I think the key term to that is inaction. How many times has a, something racist happened and people have sat by? People have said, okay, that, that's, that happened. Oh, and one of the favorite things people like to say, oh, you know how this is. You know how that person is. You know how the community is. That's a racist action because... You're saying that that racism is okay. 
You know, and I remember um, when I first won Teacher of the Year, I traveled the state of Virginia with Dr. Lane, and not Dr. Lane, who was the state superintendent of education. And we're not talking, you know, Central Virginia, Tidewater, you know, Northern Virginia. I'm talking Southwest Virginia, going down the side of a mountain on a one-lane road, Virginia. And we went to a couple of school districts out there. And I remember there was a one school district where the kids were walking around with Confederate belt buckles, Confederate flags, just a place where I just didn't feel comfortable. I'm not going to lie. And then I remember the superintendent and one of the county supervisors came up to Dr. Lane and he said, Dr. Lane actually said, what are you guys doing about this? He said, doing about what? He's like, this, these these Confederate symbols everywhere. He's like, for God's sakes, you have a black principal of this school and you're allowing the kids to do this. And then he said, I remember the superintendent said, well, you know how this county is. And Dr. Lane said, quote, you are the school. You are the community. You set the standards for this community. And so you need to do something about this. You know, and to me, that was, a, that was an anti-racist action. He saw something. He could have easily let it go like all the other people. He became an accomplice at that moment. He became an anti-racist because he used his power, his privilege to call out a racist act. And that's what we need in education. All students deserve to go to schools that are anti-racist, to have teachers who are anti-racist, and to live in communities that are anti-racist and promote social justice. And so one of my main goals as I travel the country, as I give speeches, is just to talk about those issues because all students deserve a quality education, and a quality education starts with anti-racist curriculum and anti-racist teachers. Thank you. Now I'll open it up to some questions. Thank you so much, Rodney. Really, really appreciate it. It's amazing. Um, now is the opportunity for those of you on this uh, webinar to throw some questions. And if you can, um, type them into the, the Q&A function um, and they'll come up and I'll go ahead and read them um, and, and have uh, an engaged conversation with Rodney. Um, while, uh, while we're waiting for some questions to come in, and please don't be shy about doing that because uh, we want to, as Rodney stated in the beginning, really have a conversation with Rodney. Um, one of the things you ended on, and I think it's really so amazing to think about, particularly with the uh, marches and protests this past summer, um, is how might we think of more opportunities for schools to create um, anti-racist uh, pedagogy in curricula? How might you, um, if there's teachers on the call right now or people who eventually want to be teachers, students, how might you guide uh, and think about that, particularly with the focus on it this summer, and it might be some things that you could, you could you know, state to teachers or to be uh, aspiring teachers to, to create that type of framework in a classroom, Rodney. Well, it starts with um, just making sure all students feel welcome and that you have a classroom where every student sees themselves, every student is empowered to be whatever they want to be. And one of the biggest mistakes, I think, educators are making right now is that they're saying, oh, let's look at our history curriculum. Let's make sure we're teaching history. You know, let's make sure we're teaching uh, real history, a different form of history. Let's do a hundred minutes. 
sorry, I'm having some computer issues. All right. So, but the reality is that's only a start. You know, we can teach true history, and that's 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 the easy part. But the reality is every subject in education is racist. You know, every subject is. But you know, I think you cannot decolonize education and just think by just changing history standards. It starts in English. It starts in science. It starts in math. If students don't see themselves as successful representations in all of these places, then they, you don't have an anti-racist environment. You know, and I quoted Sharif um, Mekki earlier today, and he's one of the guys I really listen to, but he often has a theory. He calls it the windows and mirrors theory of education. And he says that black kids, when they go, black and brown kids, when they go to school, they see education through windows. Everything they look at, they look at is foreign to them, from the books they read, to the teachers in front of them, to the standards in the school. Everything is taught from a particular white European point of view. So the, what that, the negative side of that is, they are always told that this isn't your world. You don't belong here. You don't have any value to us. Whereas white kids, when they go to school, everything is reflective to them. Everything shows them what they can be from the teachers to the curriculum, to the standards, to the just basic values that we hold in school. Everything is from that point of view. So when you go to school, oh, it's a welcoming place. It reflects everything I see and everything I believe in. And until black and brown students can go to classrooms and go to schools where they see mirrors of themselves in all curriculum, Mirrors in front of them when they look at their teachers, their principals, their school counselors, and mirrors in front of them that take into, take into account that their culture is different, that their values are different, we're always going to have racist classrooms. So it's really important that we start creating mirrors of success for all black, black and brown students in our classroom. Great thought. Great thought. And I love that, the mirrors of success um, for all students. Um, there's a question uh, in the Q&A. So uh, how can we encourage more parents to stay in the city and send their kids to Richmond Public Schools? Um, and uh, the can, question continues, many, especially affluent parents, um, often send their kids to private schools or move out uh, to the county. So any, any thoughts on how, particularly in your role now in, with RPS, that we encourage all families to stay in the city um, and not to exit or send their kids to private schools, but particularly those at fluent uh, parents and, and families? Uh, um, stop being racist. <laughs> I mean, I mean, just being honest, why do you have to sit and feel you have to send your kids to the counties or to a private school to get an education? That is a very racist belief. You know, I've worked with some of the brightest kids I've ever met in Richmond Public Schools, and we provided them with opportunity and access to different programs that actually highlight and take and illuminate their skills. And so the reality of, oh, the, we have to take our kids to the counties or we have to send them to private schools to get an education is a racist idea. Because you, in, in a sense, honestly, I hate to say it this way, but you're thinking that black and brown people equals dumbing or lowering the standards of education. And so until you address those things within yourself, you're going to continue to believe those things and send your kids to private schools and county schools and things like that. And so I think far too often we put the onus on other people to make an issue when really the issue is 
the beliefs and what we have in ourselves. So just stop being racist and send your kids to the schools and you'll find out that there is quality education going on in Richard Public Schools. Yeah, I, I, one of the things that, you know, my work is, is in looking at segregation in schools, Rodney, and, and you just spoke to my class on, on some of these topics. And I think, you know, the notion of how we've continued, you know, so many years after Brown to segregate ourselves, right? And to yeah. say those are not good schools, I'm going to, you know, pick these other schools and housing around those areas, I think is it's a, correct, a correct assumption around that, right? Is to, to we continue to, 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 to isolate ourselves, right? And yeah. so, do you have a thought on that? Because I want to, you know, kind of follow up on that. The, the nature of segregation in schools today is alive and well, right? It's not a phenomenon of 60, 70 years ago. Um, how do we continue to break down those barriers? Do you wanted to follow up on that question? It kind of goes back to that question and the fact that it kind of centers whiteness, you know. And when we say that education can only be good if it's connected to white values and white people, you know? Because if you look at the Brown case, the Brown case wasn't necessarily about school integration. The Brown versus Board of Education case was about funding. There were tons of great, great black schools with tons of great black teachers, but they didn't have resources necessary to be even greater. And so they went to court simply because we want more money. When you talk about the um, Prince Edward case um, uh, slips my mind right now. If you go back to that case, Barbara Johns, thank you. Barbara Johns wasn't necessarily, they weren't suing because they wanted to be integrated. They sued because they wanted a better building. I remember I had a conversation with John Stokes, who was a part of that lawsuit a couple of years ago, and he said, our buildings were so bad that when it rained, we went outside not to get wet, you know? And that's what the core of that case was. We wanted a better building. We did not want integration. And so I think that is the unfulfilled legacy of Brown. It's more so an issue of school funding than integration. But it really became about integration because, once again, the case began to center whiteness and said that black kids can only learn great at a high level when they're connected to white students. That's not the case. Black kids can learn when they're given proper teachers, proper resources, and a proper financial system that funds black schools at a level. So really, people say, look at the integration and say, oh, we're back to the same levels of, that we were before Brown. Look at the school funding. We're back at the same levels that we were before Brown. And ultimately, that was the initial point of the case was more school funding. And so until we attack the racism that is in school funding, we're gonna to continue to miss the goal and start having these racial conversations rather than giving people what they need to be successful. Not to mention the Brown case cost of, I think it was 70,000 black teachers their jobs because white parents didn't want them to uh, teach their kids. And so we really gotta look at Brown as a major turning point of education in the United States, but stop looking at it as an integration standpoint and start looking at it from a cultural diversity and a funding standpoint. Yeah, you're correct on that. Um, and NAACP focused on this funding mechanism. So, so continuing with this kind of line of thought, there's a question about how do we address faculty members who resist incorporating anti-racist practices in their classroom? And Fire them. What was that? <laughs> Fire them. I had no, <laughs> no patience for a teacher who doesn't want to 
treat all students as equal. Fire them. I don't, I don't, honestly, you know, I just mentioned this to your class. I still hold on to those little comments that teachers made to me in middle and high school. You know, all it takes is one comment to forever, you know, change the trajectory of a kid's life. When you're in a kid's life, you have to understand you're in it for the long haul. You're in it to make them a better person. And when you kill their self-esteem or you kill their dreams, you can send the kid down the wrong path. And we can't afford to send the kid down the wrong path because you are in your feelings about something. So any teacher that wants to be anti-rate, fire them. I, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't believe that we can make them better, but fire them. You know, one thing I tell, you know, throughout this whole George, throughout the whole racial justice uprising movement, one thing I'm proud of is I've gotten five people fired for social media posts because I screenshot them and sent them to superintendents. This person does not to be, need to be in front of a room full of black kids. This person does not need to be in a room full of kids who are LGBTQ, you know, because all it takes is that one comment, that one moment to completely turn off a kid. And so if you have those views, you should not be in the classroom. I, I have zero patience for it. So continuing with that line of thought then, in terms of some of the trauma and traumatization that happens in classrooms today around race and income and other variables around with LGBTQ communities. And how, how, did, how did you handle the, tra the trauma and, and the role of that and the toxic stress that's so uh, part of our, our, our education system today, but also in terms of the, what children are bringing and adolescents are bringing into the classroom? You've talked about that and, and thinking about that. What is the role of, of trauma and trauma-informed practices today and, and thwarting some of that possibly uh, through teaching or just general mechanisms in, in, in education today? Well, one, uh, one of the things that comes along when, you know, you had deal with a lot of racist attitudes in the classroom from students is just if you don't know, you don't know. You know, a lot of times people don't know that their actions, especially students, they don't know that their actions are harmful to other people. So you really have to create an environment and build the relationships where you can talk to them and say, hey, that comment you made creates an environment or creates a process where people could look at you as racist. You know, so let's break down and understand the roots of that comment and just generally try to educate people, you know, because I often feel that most young people, when they say these things, they're just regurgitating what they've learned at home or on the internet, and they've never given really true thought to what they're saying. So you really have to create an open environment or inclusive environment. Like one time, like a couple of times in classrooms, I have, okay, this is open question day. Nobody takes offense to anything that says we all have to grow as a human being, as human beings. So if there's something you want to ask, ask. If you, but if you build that relationship, they will be serious about it. It's all about learning. It's all about tackling stereotypes. You know, one of the things at the juvenile detention center I do that with is because we have a lot of black students, but we also have a lot of brown students. And so we try to tackle those stereotypes and tackle those things that cause conflict among us. And so I often say a good, a lot can come from a, a well-intentioned conversation. So let's have it. And so we, we create that. Then as a teacher, you have to have outlets for, your, for taking on all that stress. You know, I tell people therapy is, is great. Um, one of the things I often tell new teachers is as you're looking for new jobs, check out the healthcare plan. 
make sure that includes some sort of mental health, you know, program because it's really important. Thank goodness Richmond has a great mental health program. Now I'm going into my selling mode to get people to come to RPS. We have a great health plan, by the way, that it covers mental health if you want to come work here. But um, just look at that because it's really important that you take your mental health seriously because so many kids come to you with trauma. And as teachers, we got to help because that's our job. But at the same time, we absorb that trauma. So we need to have outlets for, for what we're dealing with and what our students are dealing with if we want to be productive for them. So just take it on and just be, be bold and be, be vulnerable. Going with that recruitment and, and more in, 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 um, in retention component, uh, there's a question about how, what recruitment and retention strategies do you believe will yield a more diverse um, uh, pre-K through 12 teacher population? And if you can then follow that up with, so what strategies would help with that? And then what legislative actions, Rodney, would you think school divisions and higher education should focus on to achieve that type of goal? Oh man, that's funny because I literally just gave a, a half hour speech on that last night. But um, <laughs> number one, it starts with the kids in the classroom. We gotta make, we gotta create better experiences for black and brown students in the classroom. Because to a lot of black and brown students, schools are places of trauma. And so it's really important that we alleviate that trauma. We make school a welcoming place. Because here's the deal, you go through K through 12 and you're traumatized by school, and then we're saying, hey, come back and work here. <laughs> Think about that, nobody wants to go back to the scene of their trauma as a career field. And so that's where you lose a lot of, a lot of potential applicants. And so how can we do this? I think the federal government needs to increase Title II funding for professional development. And then districts that have faced discrimination lawsuits, et cetera, they should be forced to spend 15% of that money on anti-racist professional development, on teacher recruitment, on anti-racist curriculums, and just things to make your experiences better for black and brown students in classroom. And then after that, we need to keep the teachers we got. Far too often, we're burning out black teachers and brown teachers. You know, they're leaving the field at twice the rate of white teachers. And then male teachers of color are leaving the build at twice the rate of female teachers of color. So we gotta find a way to help support them to keep them in the classroom. And so we really have to work on creating safe spaces, creating professional developments, networking opportunities for teachers of color. Um, third thing we have to do is we just need to look at all policies. I think, I think we need a nationwide commission of parents, students, educators, education prep programs, and just to examine what are some of the root causes of bias and discrimination that are keeping teachers out of the, of the field, teachers of color. And then they issue a report and with guidelines, and those guidelines need to be followed by every school district whenever they go to change hiring processes, et cetera. And then, you know, not University of Richmond, but we need to attack some of these uh, teacher prep programs. Some of these teacher prep programs are just as traumatic for students of color as a K through 12 education. And I, you know, I remember I was at one school, I'm not gonna mention their names, but they claim to be the number one, well, they don't claim to be there, number one school in the country for uh, education. Now, how do you know this? Because they had it plastered all over the school when I went there. But then when I spoke to their students of color, they had traumatic experiences. They were talking about 
transferring schools, transferring majors, because their school of education was not a welcoming place for them. And so we really need to go all in. If we truly want to get more teachers of color, we need to start putting our money where our mouth is. You know, we know, the, we know that that's what helps students of color best and communities of color is having teachers who look like them. And so it's really important that we invest in it. We really need to invest in it. And that's why I'm happy Richmond Public Schools has given me this task of going about it because I'm really, really going to work at it. Right, and, and um, I want to maybe speak to you at the very end about that and have you explain more of that. Another great question here, though, uh, is COVID-19 has the potential to exacerbate, or, or maybe is already exacerbating, the racial in inequities in school experiences. Um, so what can we do as communities to mitigate this risk uh, and support our black and brown students during these particular challenging circumstances? Honestly, I wouldn't say it's racial inequities. I'm going to say the economic inequities, social economic inequities, because honestly, I know some black students and I've had this conversation. They are excelling in virtual learning because they're no longer dealing with the trauma, the trauma that goes along with getting up and going to school. And so the real issue is we're dealing with poor folks who don't have access to technology those who don't have access to broadband internet. And then we're dealing with those who just don't have access to the accommodations and things that they need. So I think we need to stop looking at this as a racial issue and start looking at this as more of a poverty issue because it really is about concentrated levels of poverty. Those are the students who suffer the most, you know, and those are the students, you know, in Southwest Virginia, the students in the concentrated poverty in the, in the cities of Richmond. Those are the students who are suffering most. You know, I think we need to stop looking at it from that racial point of view, because I know some black kids that love virtual, virtual school because they're getting that, that extra, they're able to focus without the trauma that goes with being the black kid in school, the teachers picking on them, them getting singled out, them having to deal with all that stress. And so we really need to start make sure and we need to start holding our legislators accountable because this is the issue that honestly, I think there should be a student bill of rights. Students should be guaranteed certain things. And one of those being technology and broadband internet access. And we really need to start having these conversations, not just in, you know, in our schools, but they need to have those in the general assembly. They need to have those conversations in Congress as to what does it take for a student to learn? Because let's be honest, this may not be the last pandemic we go through. You know, being truly honest, we don't even have this one under control. So let's start getting the resources put in place of infrastructure. And you know, and then there's a the whole issue with buildings and how safe they are if we go back. And so we really need to start having a conversation about learning infrastructure, not just school infrastructure, but learning infrastructure that includes technology, broadband, school buildings, everything, because we truly need to make sure that the needs of all kids are met in America. Love that, a student bill of rights, uh, that's awesome. Um, so a question, um, the inequities in our schools for marginalized groups have both been both uh, illuminated and almost reinforced through this the pandemic that we are in, uh, Rodney. So, but in your opinion, what are the first steps that we need to take as teachers, administrators, in higher ed and, and in teacher 
uh, teacher and educational leadership prep pro programs to start leveling the field for all students when we start to recover from uh, post-COVID. Um, so what are the steps we need to start taking as we emerge out of this, um, do you think, in higher education uh, and teacher and then leader prep programs? Um, bring the tools that you've learned back into the classroom. You know, I think there are a lot of practices going on. Remember I said earlier, some kids are excelling. Well, if they're excelling, what, what's being done to do that? Let's start bringing that into the classroom and start reinventing education because clearly, you know, eight to four brick and mortar buildings wasn't working for all students. You know, however, remote learning isn't working for some students, but they are working for some, but they are working for a lot of students. So what are the things that are going on in both sides that are working? You know, let's look at reimagine things like, for example, if we have virtual classes, why can't a student in one school take a class that's offered at another school, you know, that your school doesn't offer if we're in this virtual world? You know, let's start looking at reinventing things. One of the most disappointing things about COVID is that when it first hit, everyone said, let's reimagine education, reimagine education. But then two months later, it's like, oh, we got to start school on the day after Labor Day because that's when school traditionally starts. That's not reinventing education. All you're doing is taking a brick and mortar building and putting it inside of a computer, you know, and that doesn't work. So let's look at what is working for our students. Who's experiencing success that during this time of COVID that have never experienced success? And let's take those best practices when we go back into the classroom. But at the same time, the students who aren't being successful, why? You know, let's look at that and let's start making sure that all of our practices in the classroom are meeting the needs of those students as well. And so it's really, really is a time to truly rethink how we do education. Unfortunately, you know, innovative thoughts isn't something, and education isn't something America is really good at. Like I said, they just put a teacher on the education committee. <laughs> you know, that's how innovative we are in Congress. So we really need to get innovative, get creative, start rethinking and reimagining schools and not just saying, oh, here's an opportunity. Let's not waste this opportunity. We're winding down our time with you uh, this afternoon, Rodney. And so I have one last question for you. Um, so um, as this questionnaire asks, what's next for you? Um, and uh, follow-up is really, uh, what do you see yourself continuing to do to impact the future in education? And obviously you're doing great work right now in, in Richmond Public Schools, but I love this notion of what's next. You just have such a powerful message, but what's next for you beyond this? Honestly, I don't know because Teacher of the Year is a whirlwind. It's like 18 months of just constant, you know, doing, doing things, traveling, even though I'm not traveling because of COVID. But it really, to me, I'm back where I'm happy. And that's being grounded in the work. That's doing things that are making a difference. And ideally, what I'd like to do is not just make this an RV, um, a Richmond Public Schools program, I like to take this program statewide. You know, I want to create a network of colleges that focuses strictly on, you know, training and recruiting teachers of color, you know, then possibly take this national. I really think the way to improve education or to truly create anti-racism in education is to get more black teachers, more brown teachers, more LGBTQ teachers, we really need more voices at the table. 
And I really realized this what, last year. I was at ECS, which is Education Commission of the States Conference in Denver. And we were there with all the policymakers from all 50 states and all the different people who run education around the country. And it's like, I saw one black man, I saw one Hispanic woman, and I didn't see any open LGBTQ uh, policymakers. And I was like, this is the problem. Until we get more diversity in the rooms that are making educational decisions, students that come from diverse backgrounds are always going to struggle. And so my goal is to get as many black, black and brown teachers, school counselors, principals, legislators, superintendents, because the more you have of people who represent underserved populations in these rooms making decisions, the better outcomes will be, not just for underserved populations, but for all students. I often tell people that the studies show the group that benefits most from having teachers of color are white students in discipline. <laughs> They're the group that benefits most. So let's make sure we're getting teachers of color so everybody can benefit and every child in America can truly be what they want to be. Well, Ronnie, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon and for your great thoughtful ideas and the amazing pictures uh, with you uh, and then what you've had to explain to us today about the role that you've had in education and as National Teacher of the Year. Really appreciate that. I'm going to give you a you. virtual round of applause, and I'm sure others are doing that as well. Thank you. Um, want to thank you all for joining us on this webinar of the past hour and for listening and for your wonderful questions that you've provided in the Q&A. Lastly, I'd like to thank Catherine Rockwell and to Shannon Best, who set all this up. Uh, their wonderful expertise allowed this to function so nicely, and so um, appreciate you joining us this afternoon. And uh, look more for Rodney in terms of his work at the Jepson School as leader in residence and the work he'll be doing into the next the, the next coming year. So thank you with that. And uh, I guess that's Shannon, we completed, right? And okay, so thank you all for, for joining us this afternoon. And Rodney, thank you thank so you. much. Thank really you. Thank you. All right. All right. Thanks.